you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book, the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. Good morning, everyone. Am I on? Yes. <laughs> it's great to have you with us uh, today as we, we worship. It is coming towards Christmas, and that is exciting for some of us, um, creating a little bit of sense of dread for others. But whatever you are at and however you came this morning, it's my prayer as we've prepared and as we continue, this will be the final installment in our King series today, that God would speak to you and to me through his word, that he would lift us up, he'd point us to the Lord Jesus, and we would leave this morning different to the way we came, right? Isn't that why we gather together, that we might be transformed by a living God who meets with his people and builds us up into the image of his son? That's my prayer, and I reckon that might be yours too, so let's pray it. Father, as we gather together in the light of your Son, the Lord Jesus, we pray that as your word is opened, we would sit underneath it and we would experience your presence by the power of your Holy Spirit, building us up as a church, pointing us towards Jesus, transforming us from the inside out. And we pray that this would happen this morning as we continue to worship, as we celebrate communion together, as we come before your word. 
because we know that this is something that is pleasing in your eyes and we long for it. So we ask it together in the name of the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said one big loud voice, Amen. I don't know if that was big and loud, but we said Amen. Well, we come today to these uh, chapters of Two Kings, as I said, the last installment in our series in this book as we've looked at the kings of Israel. And as we come and as we think of our own situation, it is easy to think that, that hope is tenuous right now, that darkness is plentiful, that difficulties surround us, that our leaders maybe have failed us, and it seems things can be difficult for us. Let me tell you that the people in 640 BC in Israel had something far, far worse. Today, it's 640 BC. It's 300 years now since the golden age of Solomon. In that time, the northern kingdom of Israel, 100 years before, remember the northern kings with its long list of evil kings like Ahab, has been totally annihilated by the Assyrian Empire. Judah, the, the kingdom in the south, is hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Send it on Jerusalem. But the darkness has been ever accelerating for them too. In, in the, the north, a new empire is rising, the Babylonian Empire. And in the people itself, or in the kingdom of Judah itself, there's dissension, there's division. For 50 years, the evilest king of any king, north and south, has been reigning. His name was Manasseh. Manasseh was a truly evil king. He killed his kids. We've got a lovely um, suite of beautiful babies in our church. Manasseh killed his kids as part of his worship to false gods. He murdered his children. Manasseh filled Jerusalem with blood, and he reigned for 50 years. When he died, they put his son Amon on the throne. Amon lived for two years before he was, there was a coup d'etat. He was assassinated by his own servants there was a brief civil, a bloody civil war. And that's where we pick up the story in 2 Kings today in 22 and 23. It was a bleak time. It was a dark time. Maybe as they were, they were mopping up Amon's blood. Maybe some of the faithful remnant in the kingdom of Judah remembered the promises that God had made 100 years before to, King, to the prophet Isaiah. This is what the prophet had said, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah, 100 years before, had given this prophecy that from the stump of Jesse, from a tree that had been cut down, Jesse was David's father. From this stump, a shoot is going to go and spring up. And so maybe as the people of Judah are dealing with this catastrophe of evil kings and assassinations and, and a rising power in the north, maybe they remembered that because they stuck with David's line. And they took a little child, an eight-year-old boy, and they put him on his throne. One day he was playing Lego and Nerf guns. The next day his dad was dead, and he was now on the throne 
of a kingdom that was embattled, a kingdom that was surrounded in darkness. And Josiah will be like a ray of light piercing that darkness. Josiah will be like the sun rising in the morning. Josiah will be a king who will do amazingly well. Josiah is not a good king. Josiah is not an excellent king. Josiah is the best king. The best king that the people of Israel north and south ever had. Uh, These chapters in some way are the high point of one of the high points, one of the mountain peaks of the Old Testament. These chapters, are they speak to us about revival. They speak to us about reformation. They speak to us about light in the darkness. They are glorious parts of God's word. They should bring us hope as they did to the people long ago. They should make our hearts sing. So let's look at them together and let's look at Josiah. So as I said, Josiah was eight years old when he became king of Israel. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 2, tells us a summary of what he was like. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. But what was his story? That's the summary, but... But what was his actual story? Well, we know from the book of Chronicles, which is, is another accounting of this period in Israel's history, that Josiah was not a Christian for the first eight years of his life, as far as we know. A Christian, I use, he was not a follower of Yahweh, the true God of the Bible. For these first eight years, we don't know much about him, except that we're told that when he was 16, something happened that changed his life. When he was 16 years old. Maybe it was at the Jerusalem youth group. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, maybe his mum forced him to go. We don't know what happened. But when he was 16 years old, he was truly, deeply, radically, wonderfully converted. And he was never the same again. Anyone 16 here today? Oh, that, that's if you're right in that. I know, I can know we've got some 15 and we've got some older here, but 16 years old can be a difficult time of your life, can't it? In that, in that middle of the teenage years, for Josiah, everything changed. Now, we all know stories of um, men and women who are converted later in life. And maybe that's your story. That's a wonderful story. And we see God reach in towards the end of someone's life or the, the latter period and, and save them from darkness. But the reality is that those people who are most powerfully used by God for the influence of good in this world and for the building of his kingdom, most people who have that impact are converted when they are young. They're converted when they're, they're children or they're teenagers. People like Josiah. Here's another question, non-rhetorical question. If you are a Christian, if you're not this morning and you're online and you're not a Christian, totally fine, great to have you with us today. But if you are a Christian, most of us are, can I ask for a show of hands, who became a Christian before the age of 20? Put your hands up. Uh, Have a look around. That's quite an interesting visual representation. Uh, My hand's up as well. I became a Christian before I was 20. Most of us who become followers of Jesus do so before we are 20 years old. You you just saw the reality of that. And it's one of the reasons that as a church and as a community, we want to see the next generation of Josiahs. 
Uh, we want to see young men and young women, kids in city, kids, uh, youth going up. We want to see them encountering the, the truth, the, ra- the reality, the beauty of Jesus Christ and being transformed by the Holy Spirit coming into their hearts and then living lives, the rest of their lives, in love for God and for others, for the benefit of the world and the good of the church. That is why as a church we invest in the next generations of ministry because it matters it really, really matters. That's why um, we, we want to have good city kids programs, not, not because of a way that we can go, oh, let's get some babysitting happening while the rest of us enjoy church, although that can be a good side effect. I'm not denying it, especially when your kids are little. But we want them to have other people speaking to them about Jesus besides us who are parents. And as a parent, we have the great responsibility for raising our children in the knowledge and love of Christ. But you know, as you know, as a parent, your kids don't always listen to you as a parent, but they might listen to someone else at City Kids as they speak the same truth, and especially true of you. I, I'm so grateful for the youth leaders in our church. Some of them are here today. Youth leaders in our church who give up their Fridays and other times to teach my kids, we've got three in youth, to teach them about who Jesus is in the hope that we might have a next generation of Josiahs. Uh, last night, I, I saw um, Sam Dempsey, our uh, co- youth coordinator, he, he posted that on Friday night, there were seven youth responding to the gospel of Jesus in our church. Now, we know that that may be the beginning of something, but we also know, as it was with Josiah, that God speaks and he reveals himself, it seems, particularly to those who are in those early years as they're finding out who they are. And that's a cause for rejoicing. Maybe one of those seven kids in our church, youth, maybe they'll be a Josiah. I hope and pray that they will be. Well, for the next 10 years after his conversion, Josiah hungers after God. From the years of 16 till he's 26, Josiah is following God with all of his God, all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he doesn't have all the information he needs. And as, as part of his program, he looks at God's temple and it's, re- it's a wreck, and he, he gives orders that it be fixed up. Gets a building project, a renovation project going on. And in the middle of it, there is an astounding discovery. 22 verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, that's quite a significant statement. They've been doing a, a renovation somewhere in some cupboard somewhere or something. They find what was probably the book of Deuteronomy. God's laws given on Mount Sinai to Moses for how his people were to live, and that book had been lost. And Shaphan reads it, and verse 11, they they bring it to the king, and when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. Josiah has, has been a good king trying to follow God, but now he encounters God's Word. God's Word is read to him, the book of Deuteronomy, and he tears his ropes because he, realize, he realizes in, undoubtedly he and his people have fallen so far short of it. He hears God's Word and he tears his robe in, in horror and in, in mourning and grieving, and he sends an urgent delegation to Hulda the prophetess. And this is the reason that he says, 
Josiah says, because great is the wrath of the Lord that's kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of the book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah hears the word of of the Lord and his heart is, is broken and he tears his clothes and he sends that delegation to the prophetess and he receives the word of God through her. And this is what it is. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched but not for Josiah. This is 18 and 19, but, it's a beautiful but, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. There's something really beautiful here. The word of the Lord comes, and it's a hard word. Josiah tears his clothes. He weeps, we're told. He mourns, and God says, because you've done that, I've heard you. I've heard you, Josiah. Your voice has come to my ears. I have heard you. Why? Because, verse 18, you humbled yourself. You humbled yourself beneath my word. Josiah will later have a son who will become king of Judah. God's word will come to him, and you might remember how he responds to God's word. He, as the word is read out to him from the scroll, he takes a knife and he cuts off line by line and he throws it into the fire, showing his contempt for God's word, not his father, Josiah. Josiah humbles himself. It, Isaiah 66 verse 2 could have been a verbal portrait of Josiah. This is what it says. But this is the one I will esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God says, you, you want to know who I think highly of? You want to know who I esteem? Well, it's not the big strong man with the big voice and the big power. It's not the king on his throne. This is who I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And that's a question we should ask. Are, are, are you humble before God's word? Am I humble before God's word? Some time ago now, I met um, a young woman um, who wanted to talk with me. She said she was a Christian, and she wanted to talk to me about the particular issue of homosexuality. And she said, I want you to tell me why it's wrong, because she didn't think it was wrong. 
So what would I do as a pastor? I would take her to the Word of God, wouldn't I? That's the only place I can go. So I went to the Word of God and I, and I opened some of the passages with her. And I could sense her impatience and I could sense her frustration. And then after a little while, she, she, said, she said, I'm not interested in, the, in what the Bible says. I'm not interested in that. You tell me why you think homosexuality is wrong. That's the very opposite of, of Josiah, isn't it? We, we, we're probably not ever going to be as, most of us are not going to be as brutally honest as she was. But how often is it true that you and I come up to a conclusion about something that we might think, and it's pretty always usually the same thing that whatever culture will think, and then we come and say, we've made our decisions about this thing, whatever it might be, and then we come to the Bible, and if we do say we're Christians, then we look at ways of saying that the Bible actually agrees with us. We stand it exactly on its head. Instead of coming before God humbly and saying, God, would you show me your will? Would you show me how I should live in this difficult world in which I live? Would you teach me and show me? We come and go, I know how I should live and I know what I should do. And now I'm just going to get a few proof texts that will show others that I've taken the Bible seriously. It's, it's not humility before God's word. It's actually a pride. It's, it's an arrogance. And, you know, there are some of us here who don't do that overtly. But here's, here's another way we can often do it. How often... Have we been in a Bible study, and I've got to ask this question, how often have I led a Bible study where it's ended up being a pure gathering of information? You know what I mean? And, and you come to the, to the Word and we open it up and we're looking for information, we're, we're looking for, for facts, we're treating it exactly like we would treat an English text in year 12, we're, we're pulling it apart, we're saying, so what did God mean here? And the whole time, it's just easy to have we've got God at arm's length because we're talking about his word like this and we're sitting on it and we're wondering what might be said and asking questions, but the whole time our hearts are closed off because we don't really want to, we're frightened of what would happen if we would actually sit under God's word and say, God, you are the God of the universe. Speak to me through your word because I'm listening and I want to change. And what we have when we do this as a church, and you can do it in sermons too, by the way, preaching them and listening to them, what we have is a community that holds God at an arm's length and refuses to experience God for who he is revealed in his word, but not Josiah. Josiah hears a hard word from God, which he didn't want to hear. Would you want to hear that word if you were Josiah? I wouldn't. Josiah hears the word and he humbles himself. He trembles before God and, and then God says, Josiah, I've heard you. I have heard you. It's beautiful there and it's challenging to us. And what is also challenging is that, that Josiah is not just someone who humbles himself at God's words and, and he hears what God is saying and then he just goes away as Jesus said and looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Josiah is someone who hears the word of God and then he puts it into action and obeys. Boy, does he put it into action. Chapter 23 is a whole chapter talking about how he puts it into action. It begins in 23 verse 3, and this is also a glorious verse. And the king stood by the pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord 
to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. Josiah stands before the Lord and he makes a promise and he says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to live for you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I heard the words of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I'm going to do it. There's something to be said for us actually responding publicly and saying, I will follow you, Christ. There's something to be said because Josiah stands before the people and he says, this is my promise before you. This is the covenant I make. I'm going to be your man. I'm going to be your king. I dedicate myself to this. And look what happens there. And all the people joined him in the covenant. This is a wonderful moment of, of reformation. God's people, remember the blackness and the darkness and the hopelessness. Now they are coming before God and saying, this is what we are doing together. We are going to love the Lord. And then Josiah puts it into practice. And in verse 23, there are 12 Sorry, in chapter 23, there are 12 different things that he does. I'm not going to go through all of them. Read the chapter. There's a lot of things that he does. But here's, a, here's sort of like a, a highlight reel. He cleans out the temple of all its foul idolatry. And in the process, and just let this sink in for a moment, he destroys the houses of the male prostitutes who lived in the temple. Things were bad, really. We think that things are bad. Then he restores the Passover, and it's the first time it's happened for decades, maybe even hundreds of years. It's interesting there that none of the kings of Israel or Judah have had the festival of the Passover. We went through the book of Exodus. We know how significant that was. Josiah says, we're restarting it according to the word of the Lord, and he does with joy and celebration. And he goes after all of the temples that, remember when, if you hear when we looked at Solomon building a temple to Molech? the God of child sacrifice on the outskirts of Jerusalem. None of the kings that followed him, Hezekiah, none of them, none of them really did business with these places. Josiah, though, he not only destroys them, he desecrates them. They cannot be used for worship again. He, he targets all of these buildings around Jerusalem, but this is not enough for Josiah. Remember, Josiah is the king of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed. Josiah goes, well, I've done the reformation here in my kingdom in the south, and now I'm going north, and I'm going to do the same thing in Israel, which was destroyed by the Assyrians. It's now just a, it, it, it's a vassal state of, of their empire. And he goes in there anyway, and he reforms the situation. He desecrates uh, the, the golden calves of Jeroboam. Remember those ones keeping cropping up? He deals with them. It's amazing what he does. And as he does that, surely you and I think, this is, the, this is the one from the stump. This is the branch rising up. This is the one Isaiah saw. He's here, and his name is Josiah. And verse 25 tells us, uh, this is how God gives a verdict on Josiah's reign. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. Josiah was simply the very best king that there was ever. And in his reign, lightness comes into the darkness. Hope comes to where there was only despair. 
future looks bright, except that God has already spoken and he always keeps his word. Verses 26 and 27 are very jarring. They come immediately after the verdict that God gives on Josiah, as good as you could get. But this is what he says next. Or this is what the text says. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. God speaks honestly of Josiah and says, I heard you, and you're as good a king as there has ever been. You are the best. But my anger is not turned away. It's as if the nuclear missile of, of God's judgment, which was launched in the time of Manasseh, too late to turn it around. It's en route. And so it turns out, the light of reformation is suddenly extinguished. The, lo- the light of revival is extinguished in a moment. And you can read about it in Chronicles. Kings doesn't speak of it. But what happens is there's a, a, a geopolitical war between the north and the, the rising Babylonian empire in the south, Egypt, and the Egyptian army sends soldiers up to fight in the north and Josiah decides that he'll lend a hand in stopping them. And we're told in Chronicles that the Lord says to him, this is not your battle. But Josiah goes anyway, and at Megiddo, he dies in the chariot, the blood seeping on the floor, just as it did for Israel's most evil king, Ahab. And then in a couple of chapters, if you read through the last chapters of Kings, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just extinguished almost overnight. A few more evil kings, a few more idolatry, and then boom. The Babylonian army arrives, Jerusalem is burnt. God's experiment on earth in his people, Israel and Judah, is snuffed out, and the last king of Judah shuffles off in chains, blinded into exile, and it's game over. This raises some questions, doesn't it? When when you read that, account, doesn't it raise some questions for you? I'll I'll give you a couple of questions it raises for me. Number one, why was Manasseh, the most evil king of all, bar none, allowed to reign for 50 years and there is not a single recorded incident of any problems in his life? 50 years, the most evil king, when Josiah, the best king of all, dies a violent early death in battle. Why? 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 <laughs> I mean, if we believe in a God of mathematical equations that you, you do good and you get blessing, why did that not happen? Why? And, and let, let's ask some other questions or, or some other things. We think if you marry a Christian, your marriage will be happy and it will last. We think if you honor God, you will thrive in your career. We think if you preach God's word faithfully, your church will grow. We think if you teach your children when they are young how they should go and how they should follow the Lord, that when they are old, they will not turn from the path and they will come to know God too. We think if we avoid the sins of the flesh and we honor God with our bodies, that our bodies will live long, healthy lives. 
But the reality is those things don't always happen, do they? And you know what? We shouldn't pretend that they do. Yes, there's a reality in God's Word that says these things will normally take place, right? But not always. And we do a disservice to the church and to each other when we pretend that these things always happen because if you are one of the people for whom they do not happen, there's a horrible weight of judgment that comes with it. What did I do wrong? This passage, I think, shows us that the very best king of Israel and Judah, Josiah, dies in battle at a young age despite living an exemplary life. Not because he sinned, not because he was unfaithful, not because there was something wrong in anything that his life was doing, but because he was part of a bigger story. And he was born in a time when God's judgment had already been decided. So if that's you this morning, and, and one of those things maybe, or something that didn't, I didn't mention, touches you, and you go, yes, you know, like, you actually should find hope in this story. Hope that there's a mystery in God which you and I are not capable of, of condensing to two-dimensional. God is four, five dimensional. We cannot understand how he works. There's mystery in God, and there should be, because what sort of God would you worship if you understood everything about him anyway? But we should find hope there that there's mystery. All right, some other questions. Why is it that nothing on earth ever really fills the hype around it completely? Why is it that everything lets you down in the end to some degree? Why is it that Every move in, of God in a church or an organization, every revival, every reformation ends up with a sputtering end. Why is it that every church, even the very best church, has a shadow side? Why is it that no leader completely and entirely presents the truth of God in word and in deed? Why is it that when we read the Bible, it seems that eventually the church of Jesus Christ will be oppressed and crushed by the Antichrist? Why are these things the case? Well, I think our part is not to be cynical and disconnected in this, to go like, oh, the church is not perfect, so I don't want to know anything to do with it. Or every leader would fail, so I'm not going to get involved in anything. That's not true. But again, it doesn't help us to pretend and I think over the years in, in my life, as I prevented, presented the good news of Jesus, early on in my Christian life, I just saw so much of the, of the, the reality of the goodness of God, I still do, that I, I'd, be, I'd be almost want to say, look, hey, you know, like, you, you, you're getting drunk all the time, you, you, your body's, you know, suffering for it, your career's suffering for it, come to Jesus and you'll have everything, your career and the body, and you don't need alcohol. And there's truth in that, right? But it's easy to present it and say, like, become a Christian and then you suddenly have got it all together and you are suddenly in this position where you're just, you're perfect like Jesus, right? We shouldn't pretend that that is true because it's, it's not. We're all broken. Yeah, we're all areas of our lives where we're still wrestling with God's reformation in our own lives and we shouldn't present a false picture because in the end, people who are outside, they see through it anyway. And let's think about it, Jesus never presented a false picture of what it was to follow him, did he? 
There's one account in the Gospels where after Jesus has been teaching the crowds, they all go, this is too hard. <laughs> no, we're out of this. And, and Jesus is standing where with the, just his disciples around him. He says, are you going to leave me too? Jesus presents it as it is, and, and, and we should too. Both the glory, both the hope and the light and the wonder and the joy and the reality that this side of eternity, there's difficulties, there's failures, there's things that make us sad. And sometimes we contribute to them too. That's the reality of what it is to follow Christ. But what I find so much hope in is that it's not just blind faith. It'd be easy to go like, well, you're just saying believe in God and even if you don't see the blessings that you want from God, still believe in Him anyway. And that sounds like blind faith. You know, why would you believe in a God that can't guarantee the blessings that you need for your life? Why believe in a God that can't give you a good marriage or good health or, or a good career, whatever it might be? And the reason is, and this is so important, that God has not asked us to believe or do anything which He has not done Himself. God has not asked us to live in this world where there is contradictions, where there is mystery, and is not without experiencing Himself. And you, you know where I'm going here. I hope you know where I'm going. You see, Josiah brought light into the darkness. Josiah lived an exemplary life. But Josiah wasn't who Isaiah was speaking about in the end. He was a righteous branch, but he was not the righteous branch. And the righteous branch who would come, who would rise up from the shoot of Jesse, would be one who would experience the full gamut of this world who would live with all its disappointments and contradictions and who in, in, in many ways would, would have far more injustice put on him than Josiah ever did and yet would live perfectly. And you know who I mean, this is Jesus. That's why when we look at the Old Testament, we don't focus on Josiah and then end there. We want to say Josiah is pointing to one who is so much greater. And listen to some of the ways that Josiah does point to the real branch. Listen to this. Josiah sought the Lord when he was still a child. Jesus had to be in his father's house. Josiah humbled himself. But Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Josiah obeyed the word of God. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Josiah renewed the covenant with God, but he couldn't save his people from its curses. Jesus begins a new and better covenant, and he takes the curse on himself. Josiah celebrated Passover by killing a lamb. Jesus says, I will provide the lamb for Passover that God might pass over. Josiah died in a battle that he should not have fought. Jesus died in a battle that only he could fight. Josiah was conquered by death. Jesus conquered death forever. In the Lord Jesus, we see a bright shining star, a burning flame that will grow brighter and brighter until all evil and injustice is gone, until the full mystery of God is revealed in his word. Uh, Isaiah 11, the same prophecy I read before, ends like this. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist 
and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is often a a black world. This is often a world where disappointments are real. And, And maybe this morning you come and you have experienced those disappointments over these last year or years. And maybe there are many reasons for that that you feel that blackness and you feel the separation and and you wonder at the goodness of God and you hear people singing of the goodness of God and singing happy Christmas carols and for you, Christmas season just makes it worse. That is you. Know that God hears you. Just as he heard Josiah. Know that while your life might not work out exactly the way you want it to or maybe you even think it should, that God has his hand on you. He's close to the brokenhearted. He sees where you're at. And he loves you. And you know, once Josiah's death is not a tragedy in the big picture. It's easy to see it as a tragedy. But God in his love spared Josiah because he loved him. He spared him what was coming. He took him to be with him. God is with us. He is Emmanuel. And you know what? One day, because of Jesus, there'll be no more almost revivals. One day, there'll be no more great hopes that just don't quite get fulfilled. One day, there'll be no more darkness. In fact, darkness will be gone forever because that bright branch growing up will one day be a light that fills the whole universe. There's hope there, you know. And so as we, as we come to the end of Kings, they've all failed. We've looked at a succession of pretty bad ones and then we've ended with the best one of all. Even he falls short. But the book of Kings points us on towards one who will not fail. One who will never let us down. And so as we, we come to this, it's appropriate to look at Josiah and go, we should, we should follow his example because it's good. What an amazing man of God. But let's not end there. Let's look beyond and see the Lord Jesus Christ and his example. Let's see his life and what his failure and death achieved that you and I might be part of the greatest story in the universe. A story which in the end will not disappoint. When the mystery is finally unveiled and you and I see God, we will not be disappointed. We will not think, I wish I'd done something else on earth. Instead of following you, we will realize that there is full fulfillment because the Bible says, I'm going to end with this, in Christ Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. All of God's promises, yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.